0: If you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll be looking at that passage, and we'll be going to fifteen chapter 15, we won't be reading the whole passage today, uh, but today we'll just read from verses 1 to 29. Second Samuel chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name, whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. Prepare the food in my sight so that I may eat it, uh, see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So David went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat, and Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me, or withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong, and sending me away is greater than uh, the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus the, were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Balahazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servants. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. The king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Mark Twain once wrote, there comes a time in every rightly constructed boy's life when he has a raging desire to go somewhere and dig for his hidden treasure. When I was a young boy, I did that exact same thing. I had seen pirate movies and and talk of hidden treasure, and so I went into my backyard and I started digging for hidden treasure. Unfortunately, I didn't find anything. Uh, But there have been a number of people who have come upon unexpected treasures as they were searching for either that object or not even looking at all. Uh, For example, several years ago, a couple named uh, Angus and Angela Brown were in the market for uh, a chair. And so they went to this auction and they bought this chair. It was less than $10, like $7. And it was kind of in rough shape, and so they debated what they were going to do with the chair, if they were going to repaint it or have it reupholstered. Ultimately, they decided to have it reupholstered, but they didn't have the money to do it, so they put it in the attic for the next six years. Finally, they decided they were going to do something with the chair. They brought it out, took it to a place to get reupholstered, and they found jewelry in there, uh, one diamond ring, one diamond brooch, two diamond earrings that were worth over $6,000. $6,000. Another individual from England, his name was Peter Watling, he was a farmer. He lost his hammer out in his field, and he had a friend who had a metal detector, and he called for the friend to come over. He didn't find that hammer, but he found a big oak chest that dated back to the 4th century B.C., filled with gold jewelry, coins, and silver spoons. Archaeologists were called in to help, and they found other... uh, treasures in that field, including Roman ladles, serving bowls. It was such a big uh, hoard that it was bought by the Bridges Museum and it was so valuable that they didn't even have enough money they had to get um, they had to request donations from the National Art Collection to be able to afford it. The total cost of that find was about 3.8 million dollars that it was worth. Uh, A couple in Northern California in 2013, just a few years ago, literally found a pot of gold underneath their tree. They found 1,427 pristine gold coins from 1847 to 1894 from the 19th century California gold rush, valued at over $10 million. I'd like to find that kind of a treasure. But as I looked at the passage this week, chapters 13, 14, and 15 in 2 Samuel, honestly, my first impression and thought of this passage was, how am I going to preach on this passage? As kind of going through 2 Samuel, and we've been looking at Samuel for a while, and I thought, what is there that's applicable to us in our 21st century reality in the midst of a pandemic? But as I looked deeper, I found that there was layers of this story that are maybe not as easily discernible. And as I think we look deeper at this story, there's kind of levels of and layers of this story and if we plumb the depths of those layers just like this Russian doll, there's a story that's within a story that's within a story and I believe that there's a lot in here that we can apply to our life today. So there's the first layer to the story and that's Absalom's story. That's kind of the most obvious story in this passage. Uh, of course, one of David's sons, Amnon, falls in love, or we should say falls in lust with his half-sister, Tamar. He had the same father, uh, same father, um, different mother. He knows he can't have her as his wife, so uh, this mischievous friend of his comes up with this plan for him that he's going to call, uh, call Tamar into his room, pretend like he's sick, and then take advantage of her, and that's exactly what he does. Then immediately after he does that, his emotions completely change. In chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up. Go. So in doing this, Amnon commits at least three sins. He commits the first incest, which was forbidden in the Old Testament law. He Second, rape. Third, he f- failed to provide for her. Tamar no longer had the purity or innocence that uh, potential suitors might have desired, and hence she might have not have been able to get married in that culture. And in that culture, if a woman d- got married that w- didn't get married, that was a very grievous thing. It was kind of like their life was destroyed because they didn't have opportunities to provide for themselves in that kind of culture. And in essence, what Amnon does here is he completely destroys Tamar's life. I mean, the closest parallel that we might come up with would be if, say, a guy went out with a woman and uh, took advantage of her, stole her credit card, emptied her bank account, and then drove off in her car. That's kind of the closest example that we could come up with. He completely destroys her life. And you can, it, it's kind of shocking the callousness with which he treats her after this. He Tells his servant to throw her out and to bolt the door behind her so she can't get back in. And he doesn't even treat her, call her by her name. He refers to her as this woman. Get this woman out of here. And then in response to that, the text tells us that David was very angry, but apparently did nothing about it, probably because, in part, because Amnon was his firstborn son. Absalom another of David's sons Absalom was the full sibling of Tamar same father same mother he decides that he's going to take take Tamar into his home and to provide for her now she can't provide for herself her prospects are very limited and so he decides he's going to take care of her and to bring her into his house and he doesn't it says in the text he doesn't say anything good or bad to Amnon but all the while That anger is just stewing in his soul. It says in the text that he waited two years. And after two years, apparently David does nothing. And that anger and that rage is just burning into his heart. He waits for two years, then asks for the king's sons to join him in sheep shearing. shearing, The time of sheep shearing was a time of celebration. And so the sons come to to him to uh, shear the sheep and he orders for his servants to kill Amnon and then after that he flees from the wrath of his father he flees for 3 years where he's not living in Jerusalem and then after that after some prodding from Joab and you look at that if you want to look at that check that out in chapter 14 after this he gets some prodding from Joab and Joab's like why don't you go bring your son back to Jerusalem and David brings him back to Jerusalem but he doesn't see him he doesn't allow Absalom to come into his presence for two more years Then finally Joab or Absalom gets angry he calls for Joab again he says and Joab didn't come to him and so he goes and he orders his servants to burn Joab's fields to the ground. And finally Joab comes and and Absalom's basically like, why did you bring me here if you weren't going to allow me to see my father? Why am I staying here in Jerusalem if I can't have a relationship with my father once again? Finally, David brings Absalom into his presence. David kisses him, but there's no restoration. There's no reconciliation. Because in the very next chapter we're going to see that Absalom starts a rebellion against King David. And in chapter 15, there's an interesting reason that's given for Absalom's rebellion. And an interesting motivation that Absalom gives to try to get people to come to him. He says this in verse 4. Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause to come to me. And I would give him justice. Apparently this message resonated with the people of Israel. As a text, it says in the text that he stole the hearts of the people of Israel, and we see in Absalom a person who longed for justice. And honestly, as I look at Absalom's story, at least up to this point, I feel pretty sympathetic towards him. He probably had experienced and uh, observed how his father had uh, been unfaithful in taking Bathsheba, having another man's, uh, white, uh, having Uriah killed. And now his sister's life has been destroyed and he sees his father just kind of standing idly idly by, angry, but not really doing anything about it. And so you can kind of understand where he's coming from. And from a human perspective, it makes sense what he does. He has experienced a great loss. His sister has been harmed and he wants to repay that. There's a modicum and logic in that. Yet each step that he takes, he gets deeper and deeper into his rage and into his vengeance, where he gets to a point where even when Joab doesn't come to him, he's going to burn down his fields. And he's getting more and more vengeful. He's getting more and more filled with darkness, even though at the beginning he was innocent in that an injustice was done to him. The result is he's banished from his homeland, estranged from his father, and then ultimately leading the rebellion will ultimately lead to his death. He'd experienced severe heartache, severe injustice, yet in trying to fix those, he started to become more and more filled with vengeance, which led to his downfall. And Jesus gives us a different way to deal with injustice. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's what Absalom believes in. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He's going to make amnesty pay. Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus tells us that we don't, prevail against darkness by fighting with more darkness. Taking vengeance into our hands may have moral appeal. It may make us feel better for a moment, but ultimately it leads to darkness. Ultimately it leads to more destruction. Because the scriptures tell us that vengeance belongs to God alone. So this first layer, this most obvious story, the story of Absalom, reminds us that we can't take vengeance into our own hands. We can't take justice into our own hands. Even if we've been sinned against, we need to leave vengeance to God. Because when we take it into our own hands, it ultimately doesn't harm that person that we're angry at. It ultimately harms us. It brings us into that darkness. And eventually it will destroy us. So that's Absalom's story. The second story we see in this passage is David's story. Last week we talked about David's sin with Bathsheba, and we talked about the fact that even though David was forgiven, there were going to be severe consequences for his behavior the way he had acted. And we see in this passage how that's playing out. We're seeing the consequences for his behavior in in taking Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. And so we see his children are abusing and killing one another. We see that one of the children is going to lead an uprising against him. And we see also that David has lost his sense of integrity or his sense of justice or righteousness. Note that there is a double standard in now in how David views sin and how David views wrongdoing. On the one hand, he comes, he's very lax when it comes to Amnon's sin. Amnon destroys Tamar's wife. You'd think a father would be very angry and in some way punish Amnon, but it seems like he stands by idly. He kind of lets that one slide, but when Absalom murders and takes vengeance upon Amnon, he, David just won't let it go. I mean, it's been three years, and without prodding, he probably wouldn't even, even t- take call to Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. And then even after Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, he won't even allow Absalom to come into his presence for two years. And so while he desires a relationship with him in some sense, he just can't put it in his heart to forgive him. But somehow he allows that sin with Amnon just to go and to be overlooked. Now first, I mean, the one factor is that Amnon was his firstborn, so that might have been part of it. But I think there might be something else going on as well. When we look at the sin in David's light, his great fall what was that sin? That sin was a sexual sin, him taking Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. What was Amnon's sin? It was also a sexual sin. Absalom's sin was taking justice into his own hands, taking vengeance upon those who did evil. Now, it didn't seem like at least up to this point, that David struggled with that too much. Remember the story when he was with Saul and Saul was trying to kill him and he had opportunity after opportunity to take advantage, to to exact justice on King Saul and he chose not to do that and said he's not going to harm God's anointed. But he did fall in sexual sin. And so he seems like he's willing to overlook the sin that he's fell into, that he struggled with, but he's not willing to overlook a sin that's kind of foreign to him. In addition, the sin of Absalom probably seemed a little bit strange or repugnant to David. Because if David was honest with himself, the fate that became Amnon, that Amnon was killed, David also deserved that same fate. He had committed a similar sin and he deserved that same judgment. And so as he looks at these two different sins, he's okay with overlooking Amnon's sin because, after all, he's done the same thing. And what a hypocrite would he be if he judged that. But he's, willing to, he's not willing to forgive Absalom, who does a different sin that he's not comfortable with. I think it's a lot easier to overlook sins that we're comfortable with or sins that we commit, than sins that we don't understand or that are foreign to us. It's a lot easier to look at sins and judge sins out there than to judge sins that are in here. And I think as, church, as the church, sometimes I think we've done that. We'll talk about the evils of homosexuality or explicit content on television or adultery, and then meanwhile people in the church are viewing pornography, getting divorced, gossiping, and being filled with hearts of greed. It's like, that stuff out there, that's bad. The stuff in here, we overlook. The sins that we're comfortable with, we overlook. And the sins that we don't understand or we don't struggle with, sometimes we have a tendency to judge those things more harshly. Scholar James Sennett says this, For the most part, the areas in which we expect others to be consistent are those areas in which we have no trouble with being consistent. If certain sins are no problem for us, We cannot understand how in the world they could be a problem for anyone else. Of course, the sins with which we struggle are sins which require the utmost patience and understanding from our brothers and sisters. Either that or we take the easy way out by simply hiding our sins and praying that no one finds them out. So as believers, we need to be careful. We need to understand that there are sins in our own hearts. We can't show grace to ourselves and then judge our neighbor. There has to be inequality there. We can't view our sin differently than someone else's sin. Just because we understand the motivation and reasoning behind our sin doesn't make it any less severe than somebody else's sin that we don't understand. That's foreign to us. And we need to be careful because when we get down that road of sin, when we're not in the Word, when we're not reading God's Word, when we're not listening to God's word, we're not obeying God's word, we're kind of sometimes get blind. And we just keep doing those things that are familiar to us, and eventually we can get to be like David, where David's kind of sense of morality is skewed. His sense of righteousness is no longer there. He's willing to to overlook some sins, but not willing to forgive others. And so as believers, we need to be careful that we're always in the word, careful to hear the word of the Lord, careful to realize that our sins are just as great as other people's sins. So that's David's story. Then the final story we see in this passage is God's story. The chapters that we're looking at today set up what some people have called a fallen condition focus. And we see in David a king who suddenly is human, who suddenly is flawed, we see him as a flawed king and as a flawed father. But as we look at David and look at his shortcomings, it points us and makes us long for a better king, for a better father. In David's story, we have a justice problem and we have a grace problem. He, he fails to show justice towards Amnon and he fails to give grace to Absalom. Yet in the God that we serve, we serve a God who is both completely just and also full of grace. 2 Chronicles 19.7 says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. God will not allow sin to go unpunished, and that's why God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that the justice of God would be satisfied so that we wouldn't have to be cast out of God's presence forever. And God came in Jesus first as a Savior. He came the first time as a Savior, but he's coming back as a judge. And for those who are not believers, there's going to be judgment that's awaiting. Even for those of us who are believers, we're going to have to answer for the things that we did in the body. So God is a God of justice. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. And that we're either going to be covered by the blood of the Lamb and uh, by by Jesus' sacrifice, or we're going to have to face the judgment for our sins. So our God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of grace. Wonder what it would have been like if David would have accepted Absalom back into his family. There's a story in Luke chapter 15. You've heard the story before. It starts, there was a man who had two sons. You know the story, the prodigal son, the younger son comes to the father and he says, give me my portion of the inheritance. In essence, what he was saying is, I wish that you were dead. I just want your stuff. The father undoubtedly grieved, agreed to give him his share of the inheritance. He takes his share of the inheritance and goes out and squanders it on riotous living. Completely squanders all of his father's possessions, all that he had worked for all of his life. He gets to the lowest point of his life. He's out in the pig fields longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. And he thinks to himself, maybe, just maybe I could return back home. He thinks, my father's servants are fed and clothed, and here I am longing to eat out of this pig pen, this this pig food. He says, maybe I could go back and be my father's servant. And so he goes back to his father, and while he's on that road back to his father, his father sees him, which indicates he was probably looking for him. And he starts running towards him. This is something that ancient Near Eastern men didn't do. They did not run. Young men ran. Older men, patriarchs, did not run. But he runs towards his son. He throws a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger, and calls for a celebration to be had because his son has come home. That's the father that Absalom needed. That's the father that we need. That's the king that we all long for. That's God's story. See, when justice is expected, grace may be needed. The father in the parable of the prodigal son had every right to turn his son away. He had every right to judge him. He had every right to cast him away from his presence, but he chose to make him a son, to bring him back into the family. The same thing is true for each and every one of us. Being that we're all sinners, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Judgment would be expected. God would have every right to turn us away, but he chooses to show grace to us. He chooses to reach out to us. Chooses to come out and look for us. There's a movie came out a few years ago called The Water Diviner. I've actually never seen the movie so um, I don't recommend it or not recommend it, but it's a story about an Australian farmer named James Connor or Joshua Connor, and uh, he has three sons. And each of these three sons joined the Australian military, and each of these three sons are involved in the Valley, uh, the Battle of Gallipoli, and all three of them go missing and are presumed to be dead. Well, his wife can't handle it; she ends up drowning herself, and he promises that he's going to go and find the sons and bring them back home. Even if they weren't alive, he was going to bring, back, bring them back home, uh, bring their bodies back home. And so Joshua Connor buries her, making that promise to her. And as a water diviner, being one who finds hidden sources of water in a dry climate, he kind of had skills of looking at certain things and, and observing certain things. And he used those skills to try to find his sons. After a few months he ended up uh, making his way to Istanbul and from there he bribed a fishing boat captain to transport him to Gallipoli, the place where his sons had gone missing. The British Army didn't want to have anything to do with him. They didn't want him there because they were involved in their own recovery effort and they thought of him as kind of intruding on their space. And he didn't have anything except for the diary of his son and he knew the day that they had gone missing. That's all the information that he had, but he was convinced he was going to be able to find them. A Turkish officer who was present at the battle named Major Isin is the only one who took uh, Connor seriously. The British officer who was in charge had already planned for Connor to be sent home on a supply ship, and he was content just to leave him on the beach and not have anything to do with him. Then an interesting scene unfolds. Major Inson asks the British officer why they won't help Connor to search for his sons. The officer quips that he can't go about helping every father who won't stay put and let the authorities handle the matter. Major Inson replies, yes, but he is the only father who came looking. We serve a God who came looking. For some of us today, we need to hear the message today, that God loves you. God cares about you. And no matter what you've done wrong, no matter how far you've strayed from Him, He's longing for you to come home, to return to His table, to be a son, to be a daughter. If you're here, you've never entered into a relationship with Christ, or if you're watching online, the Bible says that we do that by repentance and faith. Repentance means turning from the direction that we're going in. Repenting of who we are, and turning and trusting in Christ and choosing to follow after Him. And today is the day that you could come to know him. Today is the day that you could come to enter into the father's household to become a son and daughter of God. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk with you. Pastor Phil or Patrick, any of us would love to talk to you more about that relationship. Others of us, maybe we've been, we're believers or we've been believers for quite some time. And maybe today we need a reminder that we need to be agents of grace to those around us. There's one character in the story of the prodigal son that we didn't talk about, that was the older brother. The older brother is angry that the father would show grace to the younger brother. He's angry that the father uh, would kill the fattened calf, would put a robe that would, he would spend so extravagantly on this son who had wasted so much of his property. And so he's angry, and what he wants is he wants the, the father's judgment to fall on the younger brother. He wants him to be judged. He wants him to be cast out of his presence. But let's not forget, the brother probably should have been the one who was going out looking for the younger brother. This older brother should have been the one that was going to his younger brother saying, Don't waste your life, don't waste what the father has, come back home come back, be part of the family, but he doesn't do any of those things. He's content to sit back and wait for the brother to wait to ruin his life and then to be judged for. Ladies and gentlemen, God calls us to be agents of grace. Not agents of condemnation, agents of grace. Where we go to those around us saying, come home. To those who are in darkness saying, come home to the Father. You can find rest. You can find hope. You can find joy that you won't find anywhere else. You can be a son and daughter of the King of Kings. Justice might be expected. They might deserve judgment. But after all, don't we all? Don't we all deserve God's judgment? But God showed us grace in Jesus. And he welcomes us home to the table that anyone who desires can come home to be a son and be a daughter. When justice is expected, grace may be needed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're a God who is completely just, that you won't allow sin or injustice or wrongdoing to go unpunished. That you're a God who's coming back one day to make all wrongs right, Lord, We thank you, Lord, also that you're a God of grace. Though each and every one of us fall so short of your glory, that you welcome us home, that you call us sons and daughters, that when one sinner returns home and says in the Scriptures that the angels in heaven are throwing a party. Lord, I pray that as believers, we would show grace to those around us, that we would be agents of your grace, that we would plead... We would persuade, that we would call people to come home to your home.